from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. An Inspector General report finds job satisfaction for employees at the U.S. Postal Service has dropped compared with similar positions in other federal agencies and the private sector. USPS employees cite good pay and benefits as reasons to stay, but long hours and poor work-life balance as reasons to leave, according to the IG report. The post office is trying to reduce the turnover rate of its non-career workforce, which has been between 36 and 43 percent between fiscal years 2016 and 2021. The Department of Veterans Affairs plans to hire more than 2,000 claims processors to manage an unexpected spike in overdue cases. At the end of September, the number of claims that had been pending for more than four months totaled 208,000. That's almost triple the typical black backlog total before the start of the coronavirus pandemic. This month, another 70,000 claims related to new benefits for Parkinson's disease, bladder cancer, and a condition linked to poisoning from Agent Orange will be added to the backlog. The VA expects it to take two and a half years to bring the backlog back down to pre-pandemic levels. The Federal Chief Data Officers Council is asking for public input on its mission, workforce development, equity, and other areas. For example, the council would like to know how the government can improve federal employees' data skills and how to better recruit and retain data workers. It also wants to know how the council can use data to address racial equity and better support underserved communities. Congress established the council when it passed the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act in 2019. Violent white nationalists pose a dangerous and growing risk to the nation, and as the attack on the Capitol January 6 showed, a threat to American democracy. Elizabeth Newman is former Assistant Secretary for Threat Prevention and Security Policy at the Department of Homeland Security. Currently, she's Chief Strategy Officer at Moonshot. Elizabeth, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. DHS Secretary Mayorkas called domestic extremists, quote, the most lethal and persistent terrorism-related threat to our country today. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. We started seeing that problem uh, on my watch in uh, 2018, 2019. We had a series of attacks and, uh, and incorporated uh, domestic terrorism as one of our top priorities at the Department of Homeland Security. Um, uh, every secretary I served under uh, saw it as a, a lethal threat, um, and that is backed up by facts, by evidence. Um, in uh, last year alone, 2020, we saw a 69% increase in the number of incidents coming from uh, domestic violent extremists in this country. So we have seen an upward trajectory for about five or six years now. It is, it is problematic, and it certainly was exacerbated by the pandemic. Why has this problem been increasing, though? What is drawing these individuals to these groups? You know, it's a pretty complex answer. We've had um, in our country uh, this... Um, d domestic terrorism for uh, arguably since its founding. Uh, there have been strains of this anti-government sentiment, strains of uh, racist sentiment uh, that have manifested throughout our history. The modern uh, white supremacist movement and anti-government extremist movement dates back to the 80s. Um, and you saw a lot of activity in the 90s. Uh, most uh, experts believe that 9-11 kind of shifted the focus of, of those extremists. Uh, we had a common enemy again. You know, we came out of the Cold War. Russia was no longer the enemy. So maybe in the 90s that 
allowed uh, people to organize and focus on the government as their primary target. You get to 9-11, you have an external enemy again. So we they kind of go quiet. If you look at the data, they're still active, there's still plots, there's still arrests, but it's rather quiet in those first 10 years post 9-11. And then we start to see an uptick. And some people also believe that the election of President Obama might have been uh, somewhat of a trigger. Uh, and certainly some of the conversations happening in mainstream America, that uh, things like the Tea Party movement or the Occupy Wall Street movement, there was just an anti-authority uh, frustration in our country. And that certainly uh, allowed a small minority to kind of uh, accelerate and, and add to their numbers on the on the extremes. Elizabeth, I'm interested to know why members of the military, members of law enforcement, are especially being recruited by these groups. Well, it's it is um, kind of it's both sad and uh, something we need to be more um, willing to talk about as a country. So, um, these groups, uh, especially uh, the white supremacist and anti-government extremist groups, have as their primary aim the overthrow of the U.S. government. They believe, and the ideologies vary. Uh, conspiracy theories um, vary, but, but the kind of a core construct is basically the, the U.S. government is rotten for whatever grievance you might have um, based on your ideology. It needs to be overthrown, and there's likely to be a coming race war or coming civil war, and so they are either preparing for it, and others actually hold an ideology or an approach called accelerationism, and they're trying to bring it about. They're trying to conduct um, attacks that would disrupt society and, and maybe usher in that civil war faster. But it's all for the purpose of overthrowing the U.S. government so that they can establish whatever in their ideology is, is the, the goal, either a white nation or a return to our founders' principles. Um, that's the, the, the drive. Well, if your goal is to go out and, and conduct attacks or be able to uh, participate in a civil war, you need training. You need uh, tactical gear. You need to know how to use weapons. So military men and women have some unique skills that these extremist movements want to be able to leverage. So, so part of it is just very a practical mindset of we need to recruit from this pool of, of experts in our community. And the other side of it is that uh, when you leave the military or as you're, you know, uh, progressing through your career, that we know that for many military men and women that have experienced combat, things like PTSD can make you vulnerable to suggestions by these extremist groups. So it, for I don't look at it so much as, oh, no, we have a problem in our military, as much as it is that some small percentage of military men and women are vulnerable to potentially being recruited. All right, well, we're gonna take a, just a pause right here and then we're gonna come back and continue our conversation. Coming next, more of my conversation with Elizabeth Newman about addressing the threats of domestic violent extremism. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Domestic violent extremism is a growing issue in the United States. The Department of Homeland Security is rethinking its approach to the issue, both internally and externally. Elizabeth Newman served as Assistant Secretary for Threat Prevention and Security Policy at DHS. She's currently Chief Strategy Officer at Moonshot. 
Elizabeth, DHS announced in the spring that it will have an internal review to root out white supremacist ideology from within the federal government. What do you know about that? How big of a problem is this within the government? Well, we know from a general population standpoint that uh, this ideology has been growing in prevalence. Um, uh, uh, the online engagement has increased quite significantly. The company I work for, Moonshot, uh, was able to detect a 140% increase in engagement with white supremacist and anti-government extremist content in the last two years. Um, so, so if you look at our society's engagement with these ideas and the fact that some of these extremist groups have increasingly become a part of the mainstream conversation, things like um, seeing the great replacement theory discussed um, on some major uh, television networks, it, that, that you just have to recognize that with a federal workforce, you're likely going to have some small percentage of your workforce that's either susceptible to these messages or actually possibly uh, very much involved in these movements. So what you saw out of uh, DHS is a tasking to the chief security officer to update a number of things, everything from training um, to making sure that when we are doing the, the vetting of individuals for hiring purposes, as well as recurrent vetting that occurs as a part of your employment agreement, to be able to make sure that the questions that get asked don't just say things like, um, or have you ever supported a foreign terrorist organization? But you're also making sure that uh, people that are joining the federal government don't belong to a militia, which are illegal in all 50 states. So there's a, a just kind of an updating of our standards and training to make sure that this particular threat is appropriately in incorporated into our screening and vetting. But how do you do that while still taking care of privacy issues? I mean, do you access social media accounts? Um, I mean, how do you do that in such a large undertaking for the federal government? It, it is. I mean, when you look at a, a DHS, for example, when you join as an employee, um, you are certifying, you go through a number of security clearance processes, not just to get a clearance, but to just be able to work there. You have your fingerprints checked, uh, they do criminal background checks. So there's already a number of things that are checked as a part of the agreement for you to become an employee. So some of this is the government saying, if you want to work for the federal government, you cannot uh, participate in or support a violent extremist movement or organization. The challenge, of course, as you kind of pointed out, is how do you know? Like, we don't have a, a designated list the way we do with a foreign terrorist organization. There's, there's a predefined set of foreign terrorist organizations that uh, make it really easy for the government to say, no, you supported ISIS, sorry, you can't, we're not going to hire you, and by the way, we're going to refer you to the FBI. Um, the, the, movements that are uh, associated with white supremacy, anti-government extremism, and, and other violent extremists um, in our um, domestic ecosphere, are, they tend to be less organized, and um, they morph and they change very frequently. So that is a bit of a challenge for how do you set the parameters to detect when you're doing those screening and vetting processes. To my knowledge, uh, that I don't believe they're doing uh, deep social media checks. They might check open source information like any employer would, um, but I don't know that they have uh, gone to a step of, of doing um, what would 
be tantamount more to a law enforcement investigation. Usually you have to have probable cause to, to dive into somebody's uh, private protected information. So it is much more about screening and, and what people voluntarily share about their uh, associations. So Elizabeth, I would say, I mean, the larger issue, and you alluded to this, is that white nationalists are by and large American citizens with constitutional rights. So what legal tools does the government have to watch those individuals and those groups? I mean, that's the challenge, right? That's part of the reason we were caught flat-footed. We don't have a lot of good data inside the government about these groups, um, how large they are, uh, how they are organized. The FBI, when they have a case to run um, because somebody has crossed a criminal threshold, um, can certainly investigate. But before they cross that criminal threshold, it's very difficult for the government to, to have any tools um, to address it. So. A lot of what you see the government in investing in is um, what you would consider non-law enforcement or non-justice-related um, uh, activities, such as prevention, um, which there's an office at DHS, the Center for Prevention Programs and Partnerships, that invests in uh, partnering with state and local governments and civil society in building uh, uh, programs to help vulnerable people, individuals that might be vulnerable to being recruited into something darker. So it, it is much more about, um, if you think about the public health model of uh, you know, primary and secondary prevention, um, and if you translate that over to the security space, a primary prevention might be recognizing that we know that individuals that are prone to getting recruited to a gang or getting recruited to a violent extremist movement um, ha often have certain socio-psychological uh, uh, factors in their background. How do we help uh, that, that community that might have those factors in their background to shore up those vulnerabilities. So, so it, it is. It is. It's a. It, some people consider it a softer side, but we have to move upstream before somebody radicalizes, before somebody joins a movement, and that is much more of a civil society task than a government task. So, there's a lot of new innovative things that people are trying and, and seeing what works. We have some success stories um, out of a few states where this is working, where we're able to help people before they cross that criminal threshold. And that's the best news for everybody, right? You've prevented an attack and you've prevented somebody from having to enter the, the criminal justice system. Well, Elizabeth, this is a big issue. So I'm sure we're going to revisit it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Up next, a new bill on the table could change how agencies address cybersecurity attacks. Still ahead on Government Matters, what's missing from the bill and how to face those growing online threats? We archive every episode of Government Matters on govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee has a draft bill to overhaul FISMA. It's the Federal Information Security Management Act. The committee voted unanimously to advance the bill to the full Senate. Richard Spires is former CIO at the Department of Homeland Security. He's currently principal at Richard A. Spires Consulting. Richard, welcome. It's good to be here, Mimi. So what's in this draft bill and how would it change how federal civilian agencies report cyber attacks? Well, there's a lot in this draft bill. It's 132 pages long. And, you know, and I will have to give them a lot of credit. That I think they went through and really identified best practices and how you go about doing cybersecurity. And I, I think that's a very, very positive thing. Um, as far as specifically 
regarding the reporting of incidents, they really have, if you will, upped the game. Um, you, you have to report much more quickly, uh, sometimes as quickly as seven days after an incident. And, and there's reporting both uh, within the administration, but also to Congress itself. And so, and uh, the other thing that they did was, you know, most reporting today is based on the fact that uh, there's been exposure of our personally identifiable information, or PII, right? So the credit card issues and those kinds of things in the private sector. Because of what's happened recently with the SolarWinds attack and also these recent ransomware attacks, they really want to expand that, okay, to be major incidents, which could include other things like um, national security issues, right, that are arisen, or homeland security issues. And so they're but really Richard, going- I was actually gonna ask you, how do you define major incident? Isn't that up to, you know, whatever you think this Well, you know, it's major? interesting, the, the draft legislation you know, it, it actually says that uh, the director of OMB or OMB needs to define that, but then it gives about eight points that, that need to be included in the definition. Uh, so they're pretty prescriptive as what they expect, but it's really anything that a, a head of the agency believes has a national security implication, a homeland security implication, or an economic security implication. That's the, that's the general thrust of where, where they're headed with this. Uh, so that it goes way beyond just this issue of, uh, of uh, PII. So what do you think is missing from this draft bill? And what could be added that would benefit agencies? You know, as I, as I read through the 132 pages, you know, one, I was impressed with, with all the detail they have about adding in best practices, everything from penetration testing uh, to, to reporting on incidents, as we were discussing. Um, but I'll have to say, I mean, having been a practitioner in government a couple times as a CIO, the, the issue that I always see with this kind of legislation is many agencies, particularly on the federal civilian side, I mean, they're already overwhelmed, right? They already have a lot on their plates. If you're a CISO or a CIO in these agencies, you're trying to do so many things. And I'm a little concerned that just like the FISMA Act of 2002 and then updated in 2014, they're kind of viewed as compliance activities more than as driving real change. And so what I would advocate is not necessarily to get rid of these best practices in the bill, but I always come back to focus on what's most important. And so what I would advocate is that agencies be forced to do real planning around their IT modernization plans, a five-year view with real detail but integrated into that is their cybersecurity modernization plan, okay? And, and it needs to be risk-based. We always talk about doing risk-based assessments because you can't do it all. And, and I think it would be better if the bill were more oriented that way so that you know, OMB could work with each agency and laying out that kind of modernization plan rather than forcing each agency to try to meet all the requirements, all these best practices out of the gate, which is kind of the way it's written. Does this bill affect federal contractors and are they happy with what's in this draft? I, I would say that the bill does affect uh, federal contractors to some degree. Um, you know, there's reporting requirements. For instance, if you're a contractor and you're breached and you're working for an agency, and there could be an impact to that agency, you need to immediately report to that agency that you've been breached as a contractor. 
I, I would say the requirements in the bill also, I mean, a lot of the work that will be done by contractors. And, you know, again, it ups the game. Um, you know, it, it's, it's good stuff, but I just worried about the implementation of it for agencies that, that frankly, are, are, are so overwhelmed right now. So, Richard, how do you determine success of cybersecurity at the federal agencies? That's a great question. You know, it's, and it's not a simple thing of a couple metrics, right? And one of the good things about the bill is this idea that, that uh, CISA, which is part of DHS, right, um, that gets a lot more responsibility, by the way, in this bill for, for handling and working with agencies across the federal civilian space in particular, but that they would be doing um, a continual analysis of agencies, okay? They would be monitoring agencies. They would be doing penetration testing. They would be really working to assess how good an agency is in cybersecurity. I think that's a real positive thing if we can get that set up and working well. And what about that bigger role for CISA? Do you think that's a positive? What kind of... I, I think it is overall. I mean, uh, so many agencies, and particularly, let's say, the smaller agencies on the civilian side, yeah, they just do not have the wherewithal to do this well. They don't have the talent, they don't have the money. And so CISA is there to, to provide, if it's really meant for them to provide more support. Like one of the things in the bill is this idea of them standing up, uh, you know, a, a security operations center as a shared service, you know, and piloting that so that smaller agencies, rather than them trying to do it themselves, if they could get CISA to do that for them, I think we've moved the ball forward for many uh, federal agencies. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining us and for being on the program. Well, thank you, Mimi. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates and a behind-the-scenes look at our program. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.